This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in and the planet we all live on. I'm Jane Nethercote from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. Normally our chats are recorded live at our events, but this time was a little bit different. When we heard that David Ritter, the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, would be in the building, we basically demanded, in the nicest possible way, that he sit down for a chat with Dumbo Feather's assistant editor, Nathan Scalaro. We are always inspired by David. He is thoughtful, articulate and remarkably optimistic about humanity's capacity to band together and stave off the worst effects of climate change. In other words, he makes us feel better. We love chatting with him about having tough conversations at barbecues and why getting involved is what matters. We're talking in the wake of some pretty dark news. Um, With Trump recently being elected, um, a guy who is called climate change a hoax, He's also vowed to dismantle the state's environmental protection agency in every way. So there's this strong current of fear, um, as I'm sure you've <laughs> been aware of. And uh, I just, I guess, wanted to start with hearing some of your reflections on, on recent news and how you, how you reflect on what's been happening. Yeah, well, like all of us, uh, watching the results come in and interpreting the results does present a bit of a challenge. Um, But in a sense, the job doesn't change. Talking specifically about climate change, we know that there are things that we have to shift to get the world onto a safer trajectory when it comes to climate change. And those those things, that mission doesn't change. uh, It's just that the terrain got a bit harder, uh, a bit more heavy going, a bit steeper now that we have Donald Trump in in the White House. I don't think there's any denying that. The movement to do something about climate change decisively is always going to be bigger than one man or one country and there's going to be a very stiff opposition inside the US to to what Donald Trump uh, uh, might want to to do. Yeah, right. So lots of hope and and light amongst the... uh... We we can't underestimate the scale of the challenge that the new government in the US represents. We absolutely cannot and you know I'd urge everybody who's listening to be, be talking to their friends, doing the necessary analysis of what, have ha- what has happened, but above all, to be organising around the, the, the fundamental missions that don't change of, of justice and equality and, uh, and doing something about climate change, protecting nature, protecting places we love. Mm. You say we must simultaneously hold in our hearts and minds the awful, awful truth of what is happening and the sunlit possibilities of the beautiful world that is still ours to create, indeed, that we are now creating through moments and patterns of astonishing social, political and technological progress amidst the destruction that is also of our doing. It's this incredible paradox. I think um, paradox is a great word for it. How can we, at the same time, be doing these extraordinary things with with the new technologies? We continue to see what would have been um, unthinkable advances in the scale and cost of, in renewables, for example, and with all of the, the, the social possibilities that attach to community-owned power and, and the possibility of bringing um, new economic 
uh, opportunities to communities that have been left out. I mean, all of this is, is remarkable and is amazing. So we, we see the emergence of the new, but at the same time, we have to accept that some terrible things are happening at the same time. And I wonder if this is a paradox that we're always going to be holding throughout any kind of challenge, social, environmental, political challenge that we have. Is this how we kind of push through the complexity of it by holding that paradox? Yeah, look, I think, I think you're right. I think um, history is always ambiguous. There's always nuance. There's always complexity. And, you know, we like to tell ourselves stories that match onto the, the story archetypes of, you know, the hero's quest or, the, or whatever it might be, um, where everything is neat and there's a happy ending. And, and the reality is that, um, to, to quote another writer I've been reading a lot of lately, Rebecca Solnit, that it's never time to go home. There's always more that needs doing. Um, there are always going to be things that, that work uh, against you, things that, that might not be of your choosing. And, and none of us has a mortgage on wisdom. So we always need to keep adjusting, keep adapting and, and um, uh, just, just hold dear to our, our values of, you know, liberty, equality, um, community and, and sustainability. Mm, mm. And it makes me think of the language that we use as well, words like fight and war when we're talking about some of these challenges. I think they could be more detrimental to the cause. Yeah, look, <laughs> there are real differences of views on this. And Bill McKibben um, has recently been using a lot of um, sort of fighting talk uh, about climate change. And I belong to um, uh, Greenpeace is, of course, an organisation that is, has, has non-violence hardwired into what we do. So we're never really terribly keen with, with sort of war language like fight or battle or so on. But what, what happens when you're communicating is that you come back to these metaphors because they're just so deeply ingrained in how we talk to each other. But I think ideally we do have language that, that speaks to, um, to uh, determination rather than um, some violent imperative, even, even just metaphorically. Yeah. What, what's, what good language could we use? Well, I think it's always good to come from uh, the place of belief rather than the place of, of language. Your, your belief should orient how you communicate rather than trying to go to the language frame first. And as, as a matter of, of my, my foundational relationship with the community I live in, I, I believe in the power and determination of the Australian people. I mean, when there are democratic opportunities given um, and uh, fair information provided. I believe in the power and the determination of the Australian people and the people of other nations and communities to make good decisions. Um, you know, it comes back to a, a, an optimistic or a positive foundational view of, of humanity when humanity uh, has the opportunity to be secured, to be treated with respect, uh, to work within institutions that are um, suitably inclusive, democratic, diverse, so that they have the confidence of the population. Um, if, if you create those circumstances, then the power and the determination of people will shine through. And have you seen that in terms of uh, people um, coming on board to Greenpeace? Well, Greenpeace can proudly call more than half a million people part of our, um, part of our family, part of our movement, part of our supporter base in Australia. But I think for organisations the sort of the age of Greenpeace. So whether it's Greenpeace or it's Amnesty International um, or other similar sorts of established um, NGOs, we all of us have to ask what it means to 
operate in a changing environment where um, people don't join in the same way that they did uh, even 20, even 10 years ago. We emerged in the environment of the traditional media where you could base a campaign strategy around the traditional media cycle. Well, not only have we seen the cycle break down, but the, the business model that sustains that traditional media breaking down absolutely. Um, so we're, we're having to adjust to these realities and, and, and you know, realities where um, what a politician does in Twitter uh, is arguably now more important to what a politician does on the floor of the, the House of Parliament. Um, all these things represent substantial changes in how we, how we, we do our work. Um, and in a sense, an organisation like, like Greenpeace that really pioneered the power of the image. I mean, if you go back to what the founders of Greenpeace, uh, their, their, their view of political change, which was really um, affective spectacles. So um, if you, you look at the, the wonderful documentary about the origins of Greenpeace, for how to change the world, and you, and you see the, the emergence of this um, courageous demonstration of a different kind of politics in the form of getting in front of Russian whaling ships um, and they talk about the, the magical moment when they've got the shot of the harpoon going over the, the top of the boat that's trying to prevent the, the whaling from taking place. And they know that the power in that is going to be in the image. And that's what's going to be affective. Well, everybody <laughs> embraces this political logic these days. And where's the energy at the moment? Well, the energy has to be directed towards um, what, what Paris means. Paris genuinely, the Paris Climate Agreement last year genuinely was a huge step forward, a huge step forward. And Australia didn't immediately ratify? Well, Australia didn't immediately ratify, but they certainly uh, uh, signed on at the conference and ratification has followed not too much later. The, the speed of ratification has been incredibly fast around the world, so the treaties come into force. But what we know is that countries around the world have not yet made domestic commitments sufficient to deliver on the promise of the Paris Agreement. So everything is now about how you get that turned into the real deal inside countries. And in Australia, we go back to um, the, the basics of how, where, do the, where do most of our emissions come from? And that means we have to start, or we have to continue to talk about our coal trade, that our single greatest contribution to climate change is the fossil fuels that we export that are burnt overseas and that means coal and that increasingly means natural gas and it means oil and in the context of coal we have to be really plain about this we need a national plan for how we close our coal mines as fast as possible but ensure that no community no worker is left behind we need a comprehensive transition plan to achieve this on the scale of the kind of uh, plan that we had for post-war reconstruction after the Second World War. We can do it, we've done it before, it will actually be an amazing, positive, fantastically bright and innovative thing to be part of, mm. um, but we have to get on with it. Mm. And this is how we can contribute to um, the Paris Agreement, that will be which our aims to stop global temperatures rising more than two degrees above pre-industrial times through various measures. And indeed has an, an aspiration towards 1.5 degrees, which is so important in the context of saving the Great Barrier Reef and in the context of being good neighbours to the low-lying 
uh, island nations of the Pacific, which quite frankly, Australia has more or less abandoned, you know, you know, yeah. no, it's, it's appalling. Yeah. And it seems to me that Australia could be a real leader, a superpower here in, in good energy. We're, we're like a global actor that has picked the wrong script. Yeah. I mean, it's just absurd. We have all of the natural advantages of renewable energy that we could want. We could play such an important strategic role in the Pacific. And the best of Australian um, history is Doc Evert and uh, getting through the, um, the human rights commitments into the DNA of the United Nations. And we, there, is, there is another Australia on the global stage that is waiting to be born. Um, or reborn, and um, uh, the sooner the better. Yeah, well, you're championing it for us. I, I am well. genuinely sick and tired of my friends and colleagues and family and strangers overseas just saying, look, what is going on? You know, we, we always thought you Australians were sort of, you know, generous, happy, sunny people. You know, what, what is this all about? What, what has happened? Um, we, it, it's time to go back to our generous, the generous sunny side of our nature. And, and, and I guess also this paradox that we were mentioning before, I guess would come up in your own life as well, the conflicts of, of being an activist out in the world and then having to <laughs> embody all of these values. <laughs> I wonder how you, you kind of deal with the, the conflicts there, if there are any. Well, look, I, I don't, I, I think, um, I think, most people probably aspire to lead good lives. Actually, I think I think most human beings aspire to lead good lives, and um, good lives also require making compromises within those lives. I mean, each, every day you are presented with moments when you've got to choose between competing goods. And actually, I, I think it's always important to kind of acknowledge that because the moment you lay down a sort of script for moral rectitude, if you like, not only do you put people off, but you start expecting people to live in ways that, that, that contradict um, the, the practical lived realities of the world. Um, and you know, that really sort of comes home to you when you're, uh, when you're a parent because whatever cultural values you may have, and all parents have different cultural values they want to um, impart onto their children, their, their, their kids run into the world. So, you know, you might, you might be someone who says, well, I don't want my daughters ever seeing Frozen because I don't like Frozen for whatever reason. Well, well good luck with that. Mm. So eventually you're gonna to have to work out how you yourself um, uh, do that that bit of, of your values meeting the reality of the world and what you do compromise on and what you what you don't compromise on um, and you know i'm no different to anyone else in in that respect i also have to make the decision when i am over hungry and i am am somewhere that doesn't have an ethical food option for whatever reason do i take an, a less ethical food option or do i um make a not eat a sandwich, which, which means that I then make a phone call with low blood sugar. So hunger, hunger or guilt out. are your options? Well, I mean, <laughs> I just, I'm using, I'm deliberately using a very mundane example. Mm. Um, and, uh, but, but those mundane examples are there in day-to-day -day mm. life. Um, and I think if you, if you, you, you have to give people um, the, the time and the space to actually lead their real lives, but similarly, be deeply committed to the, the things that change the world. And you know, that is where it comes back to, and we've talked about this before, but it comes back to politics, that the most important individual decisions people can make, I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from making those deliberative ethical decisions about, about their own personal lives, but um, 
it's the getting involved. That, that's, that's where we can make a difference together. Mm. Now, I, I notice I've done that thing there of getting asked a question about me and then turning it <laughs> no, back no, no, onto no, the no, world. But, but, so, but, um, <laughs> but let's unpack this a bit more because I think it's really important what you're saying, how we can contribute because we often feel yeah. you know, overwhelmed and that we can't actually make a difference ourselves, but you're saying yes. And it's through action. Yeah, well, the way not to be overwhelmed is by finding friends. Um, we, if we want change, we must challenge power together. We must act together. We must act collectively. I, I heard Naomi Klein say in answer to a question, because she often gets asked the question, in fact, Emma, do I actually? What is the most important thing you can do as an individual? To which her response was, well, the most important thing you can do is stop thinking of yourself as an individual. Um, that you are a member of a town, a community, a street, a family, and that we always have more power when we act together. So, you know, it means joining things, talking to people, getting involved, join a campaign, join an organisation, be active within your institution. Um, in a way, if you want to stand out in an age when everybody wants to be an individual, if you want to stand out, stand together. I mean, that is, that is I think, ultimately the answer. Mm, mm. It's like getting back to the interconnectedness. It gets back to interconnectedness. Who we are, and also the, the land we're part of as well. It, the more we recognise those deeper levels of connection, it's, the more it, responsibility we take. It is a connection with people and with place. And you know, that place means, means your street. <laughs> that place uh, means your, your school. It means um, your, your town centre. It means your city. It means your country. These are all different kinds of places that we are part of. Um, it doesn't just mean big abstract things like the climate. It, it actually means that you know the, the trees on your street matter too. Um, mm. So you're a father of two, two Father kids. of two how girls, old, yes. How old are they now? Uh, four and seven. And I dote um, in the ways that you'd probably expect <laughs> on, those, on those kids. Good. I wonder what... what what you teach them about the environment, but also what they teach you. You get a, I get asked the sorts of questions that floor me by um, Josie and Rachel uh, very often. Um, and I mean, Josie in particular, who, who is now uh, seven, um, is, is perfectly capable of engaging politically. And uh, she knows that being mean to people isn't a good thing. And she knows that if you want to um, if you want to be trusted that you should do your best to tell the truth and a whole lot of other values and uh, Josie's also been you know, herself quite involved in, in some Greenpeace things I mean she said to me recently oh daddy I only really do these things because you say so and I said well I would never ask you to you know come along with me to a rally or something where I didn't think that what I was doing was something that you also cared about so like the Great Barrier Reef um, you know, do you, I know you love the Great Barrier Reef and then she went on a little speech about of course she loves the Great Barrier Reef but then I used the example of saying well but if um, uh, if the government announced, state government announced they were going to build a frozen theme park on our street um, you know your mother and I would be pretty strongly opposed to that but we wouldn't expect you to go to a rally against it because we know you'd be strongly in favour and she sort of smiled at me and said oh yeah I get it. <laughs> <laughs> So there's wisdom there. I think look, the there's time. there's wisdom there. I think you, you 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 know there's always you always have to be sensitive. Anyone who's involved in campaigning or political work has to be sensitive to the 
to how their children are involved with it. Because on the one hand, you do want to involve your children in your life. And I, I want a green and peaceful future for all the children of the world. So I don't, I don't feel any sort of ethical tug about, about them coming along to things or being involved in things. Um, but you also do want to give them the, the time and space to make up their own minds. And if they, if they do view the world in a, in a different kind of way, that's not going to diminish your love for them mm. in any sense. Mm. So you, have you always had this activist spirit yourself? Because you were previously a lawyer in a past life. Well, I've, I've um, I mean, we're all, on a, we're all on a journey. I mean, at the, you know, we're all, to some extent, pilgrims, to, for want of a better expression. Um, I, did, I did history and law at university. Um, and when I was coming out of university, the Mabo decision was handed down, which for the first time recognised the common law right of native title in Australia. And um, I listened to people who I admired and respected saying it was the great moral challenge of the moment and um, wrote my, uh, my law honours dissertation on the subject and found myself um, with, with some patches of doing other things, but basically doing that for the next decade. And I was very honoured and privileged to be the principal legal officer at the Yamaji Marlborough Land Council in Western Australia for um, exactly 2,200 days, I remember, um, which was no, extraordinary work to, to do um, on behalf of those people and those uh, communities. Um, but coming out at the end of that, you know, there was a particular moment in a, in a community, I forget which bit of the Pilbara or Murchison-Gascoigne it was that I was at on the day in question. Because what I remember is the feeling more than anything else and just being told you know, by people I knew pretty well, look, look, David, we understand you've come out to talk about whatever it was, but this thing has just happened in our community and uh, we've got to be thinking about about this thing that has happened. And you know, the thing that had happened was some pretty bad news within the community that I won't go into, but, but went to a whole lot of um, deeper things around um, the way the world works that, that I can't, couldn't work on as a lawyer. And I really went away from that meeting just thinking through what contribution um, I was going to make with my life in service of my values. And, I guess really realised two things. One was that um, I, I found a fundamentally, foundationally respect what lawyers do, but thought that my contribution um, in the future needed to be in the realm of political change rather than being a lawyer. And in technology terms, this is the great moment of the arrival of the podcast. Okay. So I'm not only reading, but every day I'm listening to hours of podcasts. Ah. and. Um, With people, to what theme? Any? Well, how, I, I, I needed to under, had to have a, a better refined um, political understanding and critique of what was going wrong and uh, vision for what could be right. And so I was listening to, well, I mentioned Rebecca Solnit earlier on, but people like Richard Sennett, uh, uh, Richard Wilkinson, um, uh, Saskia Sasson, um, Amy Klein, uh, Robert Reich was very influential, David Harvey, people who write in political economy and um, political sociology and people who were interested in the, the big forces of inequality and um, 
uh, environmental and sustainability and the way in which the two intersected. Um, you know, that's the sort of cerebral bit of it. The, the emotional bit of it is that you just, you just sort of watch what's going on in the world. And I'd been so invested in the struggle for emancipation in the Pilbara, Murchison and Gascoigne that in a sense I had disengaged from, from what was going on more broadly because you do get inside your, your issue, however important your issue might be. And I, I, you know, lifted out and raised the eyes and, and um, uh, you, you, you watch and you... The, the trouble sits in your stomach and just just gnaws and, and so I get to London and um, I go I go there actually because my um, uh, spouse uh, Francis who is both much cleverer and much nicer than I am um, uh, was there um, uh, finishing her uh, doctorate at Oxford and um, I lobbed up and I didn't have a job and um, was was in the the uh, British Library day after day, basically just applying for for jobs, and um, the, 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 there was a Greenpeace job advertised, or a number of Greenpeace jobs advertised, and I sort of looked at looked at these, and I was you know applying pretty broadly, and I thought Greenpeace. Well, um, you know I've been a financial supporter of Greenpeace for for many years. Um, I did have a picture of the Rainbow Warrior up on my wall as oh. a kid, but then I also had a picture of Alan Border and a picture of Blondie and I'm never going to be a cricketer or a pop star so you know I'm not going to read any it's not written in the stars um, but you know I, I, I loved and admired this organisation for years well, what do I have to know how to do to work for Greenpeace and I sort of read down and the, the, the sort of I shared the values very clearly and um, what they were after were people who could sort of read and write and think in terms of strategy and think in terms of um, how power worked. And I really loved the line in there about a determination to win. You must have a determination to win um, whilst maintaining the, the adherence to the values. And I thought, well, that sounds amazing. So, um, so I applied and um, uh, nine years later, I'm still with the organisation and I, I continue to, um, you know, no, no institution is perfect, but I, I love, admire and respect the organisation I work for uh, dearly. It's a, it's a great privilege and honour to, um, to have the job I do. Mm, mm. And you bring a real humanity to the role as well, which I think many of us might have certain assumptions about activists. We kind of see them as two-dimensional, but I think what you bring is a lot of nuance and, and depth. And, and oh, thank, thank you for um, saying that. I mean, I think, I think uh, humility generally is probably a good human value or a good human characteristic. But look, I, I, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with the term activist simply because I have the privilege of drawing a salary. And when I think of some of the people who I know and admire deeply who do difficult and brave things uh, all over in Australia but all over the world, they often don't have the privilege of a salary supporting what they do. Um, I had a journalist say to me years ago that I got paid to fight my nightmares, and I think that's uh, apart from the use of the word fight again. Um, maybe let's put that differently. Um, I get paid to take on my nightmares, to confront my nightmares. Um, and I, I, you can't overlook the, the privilege of that, that salary, um, particularly, I think, at a time when 
it often seems to be sort of okay to divorce the work you do from the moral consequences of what you do. I mean, we've, we've probably all had that moment at a, at a barbecue or something where you meet someone who sort of says, oh yeah, and they seem like a you know, nice enough sort of human being, and no doubt they are, but nevertheless they've made a decision to work for a petroleum company, yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they probably don't hate the Great Barrier Reef, yet they are they day after day are doing work to facilitate the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. How do you respond to those people at the barbecue? Do you like oh. I often I'm confronted with those situations. I'm like, do I do I challenge you here? Do I um, open your eyes to the reality? Or? I think I think you always have to calibrate the kind of social situation that it is because I, I'm also a big believer in manners and civility actually, and not not. If you do meet someone who holds a different view of the world to you in, in someone else's home, then actually honouring the convention of the home and the way that we speak with one another in somebody else's home, I would, um, I think civility matters deeply as, as, as a social good. But sometimes people want to know and they say, well, so what do you think? And, and you have to, I think, take those conversations as, as, you, as you find them. I don't think one should ever be afraid to explain one's ethical position um, as matter-of-factly as you can. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't be afraid of being beings who have values. Um, and I, I've, I've, more times than I can count, had that moment when someone sort of shifts in their seat or shifts their position and sort of says, oh, mate, you're not what I was expecting. Well, what, what do you mean? Oh, well, you're not shouting at me. Well, why would you think I'd shout at you? Oh, oh well, you know. And no, and it turns out that they ha that that people have in mind some sort of, you know, funny cliche of, of what someone who cares about inequality in nature is going to be like. Yeah. You know, we, that, 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 those um, those cliches are themselves very carefully constructed media attack vehicles, right? They don't really represent what the the. The, the movement of people who want a decent world are like because we are the vast majority of human beings. And um, the, the sort of perverse thing is that that vast majority of human beings who want to be treated decently and to treat others decently in a world where there are plenty of fish and the trees are tall and the birds are in the sky and you wake up to the sound of birds singing and children singing, um, have, have somehow managed to be boxed into that that's a marginal position. Yeah. I mean, it is an extraordinary and perverse outcome. Yeah. So, I mean, the kind of, the, the, just, just the sort of follow-up is that you also will meet people in a public place, in a public space where, um, so that the sort of converse of that is that, let's say we meet this oil executive in a, in a different kind of space where you're, where you're having a public conversation and somebody attempts to make the argument, well, we all want the same things here. And I do see quite a lot of that. But in those circumstances, I think it is actually perfectly appropriate to say, well, no, we don't. We, we clearly don't. Yeah, right. And I've, I've, there was one um, event, for instance, I was out at the Smith School um, at Oxford a few years ago, um, where I was in the room with somebody from Shell. Mm. Now, Shell at that time was trying to uh, 
become the first company to commercially drill for oil in the Arctic. Plans they have since abandoned after a huge uh, protest movement from people worldwide, including very strongly Greenpeace. But at the time, that's what they were trying to do. And there was this sort of sentiment of, but we all want the same thing here, really. We all, you know, there's so much we share in common. And I, I actually did have to do that uncomfortable thing of saying, I don't believe that to be true because Mr. Shell Executive, if you wanted the same thing as me, you would not be working for Shell because there is no CSR that means anything from a company like Shell because your business model is based around extracting poison from the Earth's surface, which when put into the air, kills the Great Barrier Reef. And does what it does to our world. So I'm sorry, you actually have a moral choice mm. to take. And you, Mr. Shell Executive, unlike your workforce, who maybe don't have so many economic choices, you have economic choices. You have culpability. Mm. And this conversation, it requires like a strong core, right? A strong sense of yourself and what you believe in, but then a softness around the edges so that you don't come across antagonistic. Right? Well, I think I think that's, that's nicely Put Nathan, I think I think you do have to be confident in your ethical core. But I mean, I, I, I think avoiding stridency when, whenever possible. Um, uh, you can, you, I think you put it well. I mean, one can sim can both be strong but open, um, strong but open. But that openness doesn't become a blindness where just sort of everything goes. And you know, the the executives at coal mining companies, oil companies, are responsible for killing the Great Barrier Reef. And we shouldn't be afraid of naming that. And the, um, we now, of course, have this legal advice produced recently, it's been in the press the last few weeks, saying that the, the, the legal concomitant to this is that directors now must address the liability that comes with a company not responding to the changed global conditions, the changed regulatory environment and um, what's on the horizon that is represented by the Paris Agreement. So for every single executive in a world-destroying company out there, you need to not only examine your heart, but you need to examine the law. Um, and, you know, the, the door's open when you want to come and, uh, and join the, the, the people's movement for a very, very different kind of planet. Hmm. Given the, the weight of all the issues that you're dealing with, how you kind of uh, unwind, what you do for self-care, um what you do in your downtime, yeah. I guess. Well, we, I mean, we all need downtime, of course, and um, I, I, I do love spending time um, uh, with my children and my um, lovely, lovely, wonderful spouse. And um, with the children, it's, it's those extraordinary mundane things, right? I mean, I, I, we have a, a small, um, garden, very, a very small garden, but um, I love being in it and um, I fuss about it and, you know, I fuss, I fuss over it with the children um, and, you know, you really, you can't really go past the moment when a seed that, that um, a four-year-old or a seven-year-old has planted comes up or, even, or dealing with the disappointment when it doesn't, you know, these are, these are, this, this, is, this is the best downtime. Um, but the, the sort of uh, more embarrassing thing is that one of the most relaxing things I find in the world is buying fruit and vegetables. But, um, you know, if I'm trying to get a rock and roll reputation, that's about <laughs> I love the, the, there's so much beauty in the simplicity of all of these little tasks oh, that you're talking I, about. Yeah. Mm. 
yeah, I mean, these are, these are um, simple things. But I mean, also, um, I do get lost in books. Um, I do get lost uh, in music and poetry and, and in film, um, both uh, documentary film and, and um, films that are both, you know, it's not all highbrow. I was excited as everybody else by the last, um, the last Star Wars film and I'm okay. looking forward to seeing Rogue One. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I also, I'd never seen it before and watched the, the adaptation of the wonderful um, Zola novel Germinal um, from many years ago with, with um, uh, Depardieu uh, recently and, and Germinal is as wonderful a film as I've seen. And the, the, the lines at the end about the, the blood rising from the earth, um, I'm probably misremembering the lines, about hope, um, hope in a time of, of tragedy and mourning. Um, uh, certainly, I mean they're in the film, but it's they're in the book too. Um, so yeah, there are there are plenty of ways yeah, to right. to get some downtime. And you're really attracted to this message of, of hope, the light in the dark. It seems like it's well, whether kind it's, of pervading this conversation. <laughs> whether it's whether it's okay. Zola or whether it's um, Star it, right? Wars, yeah. I think you you have to be attracted to these things. Yeah. But I but I, no, I don't think you should be afraid of um, afraid of looking into the darkness. Um, and I don't. I don't think one should be afraid of the melancholy. Um, one of the, the um, uh, Morris Glassman, who the um, founder of Blue Labour in the UK, and he's not someone you know we don't necessarily agree on everything. But Morris has a lovely piece about the role of melancholy in um, uh, in progressive politics. He actually hates the word progressive because he says he associates it with disease. Um, but, but that role of being able to embrace the melancholy is, I think, um, really important. Um, because if you shut off sadness, it, 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 it just metastasizes. It doesn't go anywhere. You can't, um, you know, the sort of, the, the Lego movie, here's another pop cultural reference for you, the, the Lego movie, you know, it's, you know, everything is awesome, yeah. it is a wonderful conveyor of the emptiness of, of that everything is awesome vibe that, that we, are, we are faced with. Um, and, you know, I think Dumbo, itself is a is is such a vehicle for tackling that because you do embrace the difficult the, the ambiguous the melancholy yeah. but you don't do it to wallow you you do it because ultimately that's to embrace you know and we are human beings and we are hell-bent on filling the vast spectrum of human emotion we right? are and if we, don't, we are then human we're going beings to. thank you for joining us again for the dumbo feather podcast this episode was edited by Beck Fari and produced by Diane Cotter and me, Jane Nethercote. The music you hear is by the wonderful Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation, or you can hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. If you've got something to say, please review us on iTunes. I know that's what everyone says, but it really does help us reach more people. Or you can send us an email with feedback or suggestions to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, Subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. Well, almost. <laughs> <laughs>